0: Well, hello, everybody. My name is Jennifer Vilwak. I'm an academic rhinologist and allergist, and I will be your host today. You are listening to the AAOA podcast. This is a non-promotional, non-CME disease state educational podcast that's brought to you by the American Academy of Otolaryngic Allergy in collaboration with and paid for by GSK. So for today's episode, we have brought together the three speakers from our podcast series on chronic rhinosinusitis with and without nasal polyps. These folks are Dr. Josh Levy, Dr. Amber Long, and Dr. Christine Francis. And today what we're going to discuss is approaches to shared decision making with patients and co-specialty management approaches in their practice. Our overall goals are really to give you a sense of how to incorporate multidisciplinary management of patients, particularly those that have chronic rhinosinusitis with nasal polyps, and then also discuss um, shared decision-making process, both between patients and with other members of the healthcare team regarding optimizing diagnosis and management. And so I would love to start off by hearing from our panelists about the ways your respective practices Um, have impactfully collaborated across medical specialties to optimize patient care. And if you could, if there's different tidbits for chronic rhinosinusitis with and without nasal polyposis, we'd love to hear about those and just overall pearls for multidisciplinary collaboration. So Dr. Francis, let's start with you.
1: So for multidisciplinary collaboration, I think good communication is pretty important and having a good relationship with those that you work for, I think in our sphere, um, most commonly we'll either be working with um, an allergist or depending on who's managing asthma, cause that's most likely to be the comorbidity that you're dealing with. Um, it'll be peds or adult pulmonary that you may coordinate with. Now, given that nasal polyps in children, there are a different animal, most likely you know, cystic fibrosis, you're probably gonna be dealing more with adult pulmonology or um, allergy. And I think ideally in an academic sense, it'd be nice if everybody was in one clinic, but usually that's not the case. So I think a close relationship via text, email um, with your
2: colleagues is really important. Great.
0: And Dr. Luang, anything to add from your perspective?
2: I think those are all great um, suggestions. You know, it would be ideal if we were all together, actually, just to take it to another level, especially in our patients. Jennifer, you talked about, you know, any specific tidbits for, you know, chronic rhinosinusitis with nasal polyps. Well, there is a handful of patients that are your really tough patients. And I really would like to see, especially as these new um, you know, more novel uh, therapeutics are being introduced into the market, having some sort of like almost tumor board like thing. So a uh, difficult respiratory board uh, where we would formally get together and discuss um, d- different attributes. But short of that, you know, I agree with uh, with uh, uh, Christine and the fact that, you know, really good communication um, I would add on top of the pulmonologist and the allergist, um, a gastroenterologist. Um, in fact, I just saw today in clinic a patient with um, presentation of persistent throat pain, despite having controlled postnasal drainage uh, from above and still having this uh, globus sensation. And so reflux does play a role, not in, only in our disease, but some of the symptomatology that overlaps.
0: Great. Thank you for those tidbits. And Dr. Levy, I don't envy you having to follow um, those two responses, but I would love to hear what lessons you've learned in terms of really optimizing multidisciplinary collaboration um, to optimize patient care.
3: Absolutely. I have no problem actually following Christine and Amber because their points are all fantastic and it makes this very easy for me. I will agree and say that multidisciplinary collaboration is absolutely essential. And I've learned this lesson uh, through the rollout of some of the respiratory biologics that have been recently approved for nasal polyps. I have an allergist that practices at Emory with me, and through very good intention, she was prescribing patients that I had operated on uh, a respiratory biologic when she saw post-operative inflammation. She didn't understand that we expect there to be swelling for a few months after surgery, and that that's not necessarily the right time to institute a new treatment. So it's that communication that it's just completely essential to make sure that we're all in lockstep together and that the patient is aware and not getting mixed messages either.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and that's a wonderful point. And I think what can be really cool about those that care about you know the unified airway and the way that we as rhinologists and allergists do is that there are folks that are similarly interested in these entities and in our analogous sister fields, like everyone has mentioned. And so finding those people to be, you know, the go-to person that you text or email when you have those difficult patients can really be game-changing. And so one thing that I would like to do now is just shift gears a little bit to another very hot topic, um, which is shared decision-making. And it's a hot topic, rightfully so, because we know that it can improve outcomes and also increase patient comfort with the treatment that is ultimately selected. However, you know, a lot of times patients come to us with a lot of variability in terms of their health literacy and also their interest and desire to engage in the decision making process. So for clinicians that are treating, you know, chronic sinusitis with or without nasal polyposis, which can be, you know, a long treatment process that requires a lot of buy-in, what guidance do you have in terms of best engaging folks in shared decision-making? And what have you seen in terms of the most important things in your practice when you do this? Dr. Levy, since we ended with you last time, let's start with you now.
3: Awesome. So... I think one of the most important things, which is very difficult to quantify, that we can offer our patients or that affects their outcome is their trust in the physician, their trust in you as someone who's helping to guide their care. I think shared decision-making is a wonderful tool to build that trust and thereby build compliance. I will oftentimes tell a patient, I want you to understand what I do. And then give them a summary, which is obviously much less than what I've learned over the years, but is very pertinent and targeted to their care. And, uh, you know, I keep my mind open. I want to address therapies to their particular needs, but really emphasize that educational component that I give them to try and build trust.
0: Dr. Luong, I'd love to pass the proverbial baton to you. What does shared decision making look like in your office and how does that impact your patients?
2: Great thoughts on really trying to develop that bond with the patient because I think that that's really critical. You know, some of the practical things to kind of bring patients up to speed, we've created, you know, our own clinic handouts for each of these different types of common diagnoses. So we'll have a handout that we provide not, not a true handout, but a virtual handout through our um, EMR that gets printed out as they get their discharge paperwork, but, you know, things about chronic rhinosinusitis, um, what to expect with surgery. So all these different things. So we've created um, some of these uh, informations for the patients, you know, and also I think, you know, Josh brings up a good point. You really have to understand your patient um, and the kind of relationship you have. You know, the the communication you have about education can be very different for someone you're talking to who's in their uh, early twenties versus someone who's much older. And so, I think you have to be able to modify that discussion based on your feel of, you know, not only their education level, but like you said, their, their interest level, but, you know, certain websites that you can direct them to can some patients you can tell, they really want to know more and they want to get into the nitty gritty. Um, We also offer, you know, brochures sometimes from the various different vendors that are, you know, therapeutics that are offered. Um, They have brochures that are very educational. So we will provide those for the patients. And language barrier is a huge problem. I, I don't really know what the great solution, but definitely those patients of mine who speak in another language and require a translator, there is so much lost in that translation. And we really haven't come up with a great solution other than having to work through a translator. But in those patients, I think you just need to make sure that you give them enough time in order to sort of explain things that is just a lot easier when it's done in your native tongue.
0: Great. Awesome insights. And and Dr. Francis, anything else to add here? Yeah, I I think to just emphasize
1: the points with Dr. Levy and Dr. Luang, education is key with your patients because there's a lot of misinformation out there on the internet. And it's not uncommon, even older patients have already done their Google searches for this and got on a website and maybe have some things wrong. I, I think also, the handouts are a great idea because right now there's a lot of options that patients may consider, um, and having that fully listed is, is helpful because I think part of building that trust is going over all the options impartially, and then kind of really digging into your patient's beliefs and values and what they want um, and I think also the, the last thing you want to do is, is in this process, what it helps you to do is manage patient expectations. So that regardless of whether you're waving your Harry Potter surgical wand or your Harry Potter monoclonal antibody wand, people don't think that they're going to be cured in an instant and this is done and they don't have to do anything else for the rest of your life. Like getting them to understand that your sense of smell may or may not come back, kind of getting their expectations in line for what you think their disease you know, may hold for them is also very helpful so that both you and them are on the same page and you're both like, you're coming together to this great outcome, but nobody's got unrealistic expectations.
0: Yeah, I think that's a great sentiment and really at the heart too, is not just aligning the choices, but aligning what we can reasonably expect from both the clinician and the patient perspective. And so we're coming close to the end of our time, and we've heard from our very esteemed panel about the importance of multidisciplinary collaborations and and thinking not just within the unified airway, but potentially engaging our GI colleagues as well as we work towards those ideal multidisciplinary clinics. Um, In terms of shared decision making, we've heard about how important it is to build trust. Um, and to provide resources so that patients can be educated at the level that they want to engage in their treatment outcomes. And so I'd like to extend our thanks again to our wonderful panel of experts for their insight. And this has been an AAOA podcast, and this is a non-promotional, non-CME disease state educational podcast brought to you by the American Academy of Otolaryngic Allergies in collaboration with and paid for by GSK. Thank you to everyone for listening and a special thanks to our panelists once again.